But I think in his AA life, he says, better living through better things by the milk of human kindness. I introduce to now Bob Flowers. Tolerance, Mommy, I'm on. It's a real pleasure always to share in this and any program with John Phillips. I've been on many trips with him. John has been an inspiration to me over the years. He's helped me quite a bit in my own sobriety and the plateaus of life which I have found progressively one right after the other through people like John Phillips and you and you and you and you. And I was standing there talking to Clarence Snyder a few minutes ago and I was a little bit nervous and concerned about coming in here and he told me, he said, go on in and just, just tell them how you feel. That's the way to do it. And that's just what I'll do. I'm scared. <laughs> I would like to say this, though, and I'd like to say this first of all. If there happens to be a new person in here this morning, a new guy or a new gal, maybe this is the first time you've ever been in an AA group, maybe it's the second time, maybe it's a week, two weeks, a month, or maybe it's a year, or whatever the time might be that you might consider that you feel yourself new. I'd like to tell you that we welcome you here. I'd like to speak on behalf of myself, and I'm sure that I can speak on behalf of AA as a whole and Blackstone, too. That we welcome you. We know the form of frustration, confusion, and inner complexities that, that you have because each one of us have had them ourselves. We want you to know, first of all, that we knew everything there was to know about you before you arrived in AA. We knew you at your worst because we lived it ahead of you. We know almost all the details. We don't know where you hid your whisker, but hell, you hid it somewhere. We don't know. But in spite of all of this, I'd like to say for myself that we welcome you into AA, whoever you might be. We welcome you because we need you, because you are the source of our strength. It is through you that we find our own sobriety. And we welcome you most of all because we love you. Alcoholics Anonymous is a group of people, men and women, who have found a certain degree of sobriety through what John read a little while ago, the 12 suggested steps towards AA towards the recovery from alcoholism. Uh, these 12 steps are spiritual in nature. And so for the next few moments, I won't keep you too long. I'd like to just briefly touch on the spiritual side of the 12 steps in AA. And I'd like to talk to you about God. My name is Bob Flowers, and I'm an alcoholic. And in being an alcoholic, I make up a total of just one that goes to make up that vast, widespread malady, that, that malignant scab on the soul of man which we identify as active alcoholism. Alcoholism is not a new problem. Alcoholism is as old as history. We first take note of it way back in the book of Genesis. When Noah, we're told, he planted himself a vineyard, and from this vineyard he grew 
grapes, and from the grapes he made wine, and from the grapes, and from the wine he became drunk. And in one of these drunken sprees, his son Ham, who was to be the future father of Canaan, he saw Noah in one of these drunken sprees, naked. And because of this one spree that Noah pulled, the future land of Canaan was supposedly cursed in the servantry. But that was just the beginning. That was just one of the stories. There are numerous occasions throughout biblical history, the, the Old Testament and the New, which bring to light and pinpoint the devastating effects of alcoholism. As we all know, medieval history was full of it. Armies have been wiped out. Navies have been sunk. Nations have risen to power and fallen to destruction because of alcohol. Kings have risen against kings, and men have risen against men. All because of the battle. And yet, through the melancholy of alcoholism, we have been the recipients of just such as Edgar Allan Poe, Stephen Foster, and possibly Robert Louis Stevenson and others, the others who have gone on before us and left us a better world to live in. No, alcoholism is not a new problem. It's old. Alcoholism is a problem that has been hidden down through the centuries. It's been hidden because prejudice and ignorance have been two of the greatest barriers towards its enlightenment. It's been hidden in the closets with all the rest of the skeletons because there is no condition, there's no disease, there's no illness in which prejudice and ignorance is any more prevalent than it is in this field of alcoholism. You know, throughout our whole lives, each and every one of us were searching for something, diligently searching. It was some intangible thing, something we couldn't just exactly put our finger on. We didn't know exactly what it was, but continuously, on and on, this search kept on. Was it for wealth? Was it for fame, beauty, power? Who knows? We don't know what it was, but we kept continuously searching on and on and on. In my own life, I, I don't know whether this was exactly a search or whether it was actually a bitter refusal to open up just one little corner of my, my mind and let some of the basic truths of life flow in. I know that there were many, many times in my drinking career, even right from the first, that I was a very poor listener. I was afraid to listen. I was afraid that I might hear something I'd believe. And I knew that this negative way of thinking that I had, that it had been so deeply embedded in my subconscious mind that I was just the guy that couldn't stand the pain of change. I knew that. And so my search to or refusal to accept the truth, it continued on, and on and on. I was a sick man. I was sick physically, I was sick psychologically, and I was sick spiritually. Seriously sick. Each and every one of us in this room, we have had our backs scarred and torn with with the weight of bearing an alcoholic cross. And yet each and every one of us know that 
we have a God-given gift to us, which we call choice. And through choice, we can pick whichever way our lives might go, or we might choose the way that we might carry this burden, which has been placed upon our back. And this gift, which is ours, choice, before God, is power. God has no power over that. It is ours and ours alone. You know, it's awful hard to go through any story in AA without referring to the perpendicular pronoun, as Walter called it. I love the way he puts it. Uh, but it, it's necessary for all of us at times, and it's necessary for me right now, to just briefly touch or pinpoint some of the highlights in my life that I might bring to light the, the point at which my glass crutch developed. And then the agony which was mine to wait and wait and wait to see it crumble. I think that right from the beginning of my life that I was smothered with a deep, deep sense of rejection. When I was two years old, my father contracted tuberculosis. That was in 1913. And I didn't realize it at that time, but I can see it now as I look back upon it. My father was sick with an illness then that no one knew what to do about it. And 30 years later, my son's father was sick with an illness that no one knew what to do about. And it was through the doors of AA that I found the answer. But during this illness of my father's, I can remember the stigma of, of tuberculosis, which was then just as strong as it is towards alcoholism today. And my father was bedridden for six years, and that was during World War I. And I was born into this sense of rejection because I can remember my mother and myself, we were isolated from society. We were more or less kicked out. I can remember it very well, even at that early age, I can remember it now. I can remember how I would be put over into the next neighbor's backyard to play maybe with the kids that were over there. And I wasn't over there but a very short time before the mothers or the parents of the children would call them in. The door was slammed in Bob Flowers' face. I was the son of Glenn Flowers who was dying with TB. And I went through this in my early childhood for six years of it until I was eight. And I can remember, too, my mother telling me, she trying to console me. She says, I can tell you, son, the one place we can be accepted, and that's in God's house. We'll go to church. And my mother took me to church. I was raised in a very religious home. But even in church, due to the stigma of tuberculosis, everyone afraid, we'd go in and sit down in the pew, and you see the people edging away from you, getting away, moving away. Even that, that was my first conception of God. That's why I was looking for, seeking to be accepted. And I didn't even find it there. In 1919, my father died, and we were living in Whistler, Virginia. This sense of rejection was still there. We were still isolated from society. We were People would avoid us on the streets and all. And so we moved away from Whistler. We were running. And up until I came into AA, I had been running ever since. There were many things in my childhood that I did not get due to the fact 
Not because my mother didn't want to give them to me, but due to circumstances, she had to work in order to support us. And I wasn't raised in any particular location. My mother was with Western Union, and she was transferred from place to place. And I was not raised at any particular place. I was drug up in the streets of the USA. Here, there, yonder, and everywhere. And when I became, in my late teens, due to a very, sense, uh, a very severe case of inferiority, in my late teens, I started to develop in this big shot complex. That was the only antidote or the counterpart that I could backfire on this inferiority. Big shot flowers, that was me. And I was afraid. I was running scared all the time. But when I was 13, I had found something that would cure this feeling of inferiority. And it was a drink. I had been talked into it at a childhood dance or a school dance. And it solved the problem. And from then on out, it solved many problems for me. And up until I was in my late 20s, I was married at 25. And until my late 20s, alcohol was my solution. It was always the solution to everything. And I can look back now at somewhere around 30, 32, 33. I stepped over that invisible borderline into the beginning of active alcoholism. And then it was no longer that alcoholism was my solution. It was rapidly becoming my problem. By the time I was 40, I was hit in hospitals one right after the other. I've been out. John's taking care of me. I have been placed in hospitals under false diagnosis for everything from ingrown toenails to dandruff. Everything, and it was always basically alcohol was the problem. But as John told you 13 years ago, I entered AA. I came to the doors of AA. I came not for Bob Flowers. I came because the ground was getting kind of shaky with Mother DuPont. My wife was on my back, and I was doing it for just about everybody except Bob Flowers. And so I went to AA. And like all of us, I went into AA and I found this generous gift of love and, and brotherhood that we find when we walk in. I, you know, I knew this thing would work the first three minutes I was inside of AA. I knew it would work. I could feel it. It was there. But I couldn't make it work. I stayed in AA possibly a year, maybe 18 months. I don't know how long it was. And during all this time, Tommy Lovin remembers it. He was there then. I'd stay drunk and stay sober for 30 days and get drunk. And I'd stay sober for 30 days more, 30 days more and I'd get drunk again. And it was just in and out. I was 12-stepping right and left. I was carrying all the pamphlets that you could think of, AA, around my pocket. I was going here, there, yonder, and everywhere. And I was bringing people into AA. But I was a guy who could throw the life preserver, but I couldn't swim myself. And so after a period of this, still this big shot complex in AA, I graduated. I got out. And at home right now, I have on my desk my diploma. It's one of the early editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the book Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And I can remember this time when I graduated, my wife asked me, she says, Bob said, why don't you go back to AA? And in one of my drunken stupors, I stood in the middle of the floor and I tore that book to shreds. I cursed God. I cursed AA. I cursed my wife. I cursed all of society. And my wife picked that book up and she saved it. And it's all put back together now with scotch tape pinned together and stuck together. But the ironical thing about the whole thing is you can flip the book open right now and the one spot where it's torn the worst right in the middle of it is the beginning of the chapter of the unbeliever. That was Bob Flower. I couldn't make the grade. Well, after I graduated from AA, I went for seven solid years drunk. Then a day passed that I didn't have alcohol in me in some form or fashion, one way or the other. And at the end of the seven years, again, I was broke. Mentally, morally, spiritually, financially, everywhere in the world that there is to be broke, I was it. I had been through hospitals again. I'd been in, in nut factories. I'd been everywhere. And at the end of that seven years, I went into the alcoholic ward of the Medical College of Virginia. And I had a good course of DTs there. I was in them two days and three nights. And at the end of that time, I became frightened. And I started coming out of the DTs. I was afraid. I was afraid of everything. And I can remember in that hospital ward... I walked the corridors of it back and forth, back and forth, day and night. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. The one fear that existed in me was, what do I do when I step back out on Broad Street? What? Why would this work? Nothing else had ever worked. I can remember very vividly one morning about four o'clock in the morning, I had walked all night long. And I walked to the window that faces out over Churchill and it was the dawn was breaking and I don't know what happened I don't know whether you call it spiritual awakening alcoholic hallucinations or just plain nuts I don't know what it was but it worked for me I could see in my mind's eye something that that my mother taught me when I was a kid growing up and as I stood there looking out across that gray dawn I saw the answer come to me and that answer was, why not try God? And I dropped my knees. And for the first time in my life, for 30 years, I fell to my knees and without any reservations, without any propositioning to God at all, I said, God, help me. I meant it. I couldn't stand another failure. And a strange thing happened. I got up and I went to bed and I fell asleep. And I slept the next night and the next and the next. And about ten days later I was released back to Broad Street, Richmond, Virginia, USA. And my friends, it doesn't matter how long ago that was. 
But the fact remains that when I walked out of there for the first time in my life, the first time, I held my head up unafraid. And again, I went back to the doors of AA. But this time, the doors of AA were different. This time, it was not a structure that was made of brick or wood or stone or steel. This time, the doors of AA had become a station in life at which I had arrived. It was a point in my life where I, for the first time in my life, I saw myself as I really was. I became what I was. That's all that AA is when we come into it. What we do, we strip off the masquerades that we have. We step up in front of the footlights and the drawn curtain, and we get backstage, and we look into the unflattering mirror of ourselves. And we strip all the pride and the arrogance, and all the self-pity and everything else that goes along that is characteristic of the alcoholic. And that's what I found when I walked into the doors of AA. To be sure, the first plateau that I stepped into this time naturally to all of us is sobriety. Without that, we have nothing else. And I did say sobriety. I didn't say abstinence. There's a vast difference between the two. And there was times in my life when I got it fouled up, too. I can remember one time I had walked around the house for two months. I was very proud of the fact I had been abstinent for, for two months. And I was just like a bull in a china closet. And my wife started nagging me about something, and I, in, in very indignantly, I said, Hell, I'm sober, ain't I? And she says, Yes, you're sober. And with all the patience of Job, she looked at me and she said, And so are the goldfish. <laughs> and she says, They contribute just about as much to the happiness around this place as you do. So there is a vast, vast difference between this thing of abstinence and sobriety. As we come into AA, we walk into the 12 steps, and the first step says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. You know, there's certain virtues, there's certain principles, and I think one thing, I think this, I heard Tom say it one time, and it was so beautifully put, that I think where we missed most of AA is in the closing phrase of the 12th step. That clincher phrase to practice these principles in all of our affairs. There's certain virtues, there's certain demands that's made. <laughs> Clarence Snyder made the statement the last time he was down. He says, he says, there's no must in AA. There are some must in AA, and we must seek them out. We must find them. And there are certain principles and certain virtues that we must find. And the first virtue that we must find when we come into AA is honesty. Honesty. An honest admission of what alcohol has done to us when we look upon it with honest eyes. If we can stop and analyze ourselves what it has done to us, and yet we might look back and say this, as I heard a prayer the other day that was so beautifully put too, it said, God, give me the courage to combat the causes of my disobedience. There were many things behind alcohol that caused us to drink. And then one of the other virtues that we find as we come into AA is that of humility. It's humiliating to admit, to openly admit to ourselves and to God and to another human being exactly what has happened to us in our lives. Yes. 
But in these three, in these twelve steps, I think this. I think that, that the basic principles that we find that we must practice, they're found in the first three steps. And the remaining nine steps, they're very essential, but I think that they're, they're repetition, they're emphasis, uh, emphasis or amplification of the first three. And we say it's awful easy to walk in and say, yes, I'm licked, I'm through, I'm whipped. But that first step demands more of us than just that. First of all, the first step demands of us self-acceptance. It's the place where we can accept ourselves as we really are and stop putting on the act. It's a place where we can come to a point that we can bring to light in our own consciousness the childhood ghosts and the dreams and the fears and the fantasies we've lived all of our lives. Bring them out and accept them for their true size. And we'll have no trouble combating them then. Another virtue that we're asked to seek in step one is self-love. Self-love. You know, we can go to extremes on that. We can overdo it or underdo it. And we alcoholics, we are all extremists. All hog or none, you know. That's the way we go. But most of the alcoholics, they underdo this one because we have degraded ourselves down and down. And, oh, I'm so guilty of that. I'm so guilty of it. I have to combat it all the time. I, I'm, I'm very limited in anything I can do. But I can't even accept those limitations. I can't get up to them. And we have all degraded ourselves, and we have failed to love ourselves. The other extreme to that, I think, I think there's a psychological term for it, narcissism. I believe that's it, which comes from Greek mythology. If I'm not correct in Dutch, if I'm not right on this, of this princess who was looking into a pool, and he fell in love with himself. And as he fell in love with himself, he sat there and pined his whole life away. And in pining his life away, the gods of Greek mythology condemned him to death because he refused to give his love to someone else. You can overdo it that way, but we alcoholics, and this again, religion, religion is so analytical about telling man what his responsibilities are to man, and yet they never delve too much on what his responsibilities are to himself. You know, the Lord commanded us, he says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Analyze that one statement, love thy neighbor as thyself. Of all the violations that we alcoholics did, that is one command of the Lord that we live to the letter because we hated ourselves and we hated our neighbors likewise. How can we ever project a feeling of love to anyone until we first accept ourselves? It's impossible. I have a 17-year-old son at home right now. How can I ever project a feeling of faith or security or love into that boy unless I have it myself? It is a physical impossibility. It can't be done. There are certain transmission lines that we have that connect the different plateaus that we find in AA. As I said a minute ago, the first plateau we find is sobriety. And from that plateau, we move up into step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, and when we get to working in that one step, there's many things that happen. We go into a, 
plateau that we might call achievement. And that plateau is connected to sobriety by the transmission line of humility. But there's a joker in that first plateau of sobriety. There's another transmission line that leads off. And that's the transmission line of overconfidence. And that leads up to the old familiar cloud nine, pink in hue. And so many of us take that road. I know. I did. The place on cloud nine where we find over-exaggerated enthusiasm. We're seeking attention all the time. I know. I did. I've been through all of that. It was so much like the story of the spider who had built his web. And he was in the top of the tall barn. And he was picking a place to, to build this web. And so he dropped himself down by a thin silvery thread. And he finally got down to the rafters. And it was here he picked a good place to build it. And he built his web hanging by this one tiny thread. And in this web, he caught flies, he caught bugs, he caught ants, and he walked around in his little kingdom and he ate them and he became fat. And then one day in all of his proud pride and arrogance, he walked there looking things over and he walked by this one tiny little silvery thread and he saw it and he said, what's this? And with that, he reached out and clipped it off. And he fell to destruction. And that's what happens on pink cloud number nine. And there's a tragic thing about pink cloud number nine. When you once fall, you fall all the way outside the doors of AA. I know. I did. To those of us who seek to climb in humility, we go to the plateau of achievement. And in this plateau of achievement, one of the first requirements or virtues that we might is that of faith. Faith, somebody said this morning, keep AA simple. And the faith that is in AA, it is so simple, so simple. We all, in the spiritual side of the program, we look for a divine cloud to drop down and solve everything just like that. It doesn't work. It was just like Wally. He was going to read himself out of this thing last night. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. It comes gradually, slowly, insidiously, progressively it comes. And it takes a long, long time. The simple faith of AA. I, I had a, a wonderful privilege on Easter Sunday weekend. I was privileged to go to Salisbury, Maryland and share a small part on a program with a man that's in this room right now. And he was to speak at the banquet. And just before the banquet started, we went back to the men's room to brush up just a little bit. And as I was washing my hands, I, I turned and, and looked behind me and over in the dark corner. This man was kneeling on one, knee, on one knee and praying. He was asking for guidance before he went in to speak to that group. That's the simplicity of AA faith. There's another story that so many of us have heard in AA, the one about the man who went into this great cathedral in New York City. And each day at 4.30, he would walk in the back door and down the aisle and to the altar. And as he walked to the altar, he would kneel just for a second and back up and gone. And this went on for day after day after day. And finally, the section of the church became inquisitive about it. And he told the minister or the pastor, whichever happened to be there. And he told him what was going on. And so one day, this joker came down the aisle and the pastor stopped him. And he says, listen, he says, would you mind telling me why you're coming in here? He says, when you first came here, we, 
We thought that you were coming to steal the money. That was at the altar and says, we know you're not doing that now. And says, you come in and you stay such a short period of time, we know that you are not here long enough to pray. He said, would you mind explaining it, please? And he says, no, I don't mind. He says, you see, I'm an alcoholic. And two months ago, I joined a group of people known as Alcoholics Anonymous. And these people have 12 steps towards recovery. And those 12 steps are spiritual. And he says, I don't know anything about spirituality. He says, I don't know anything about God. He says, so each day I just come in and I kneel and I say, God, this is Jim. And then I go out. And so the pastor was satisfied with the story, and this went on for several days after, and then finally Jim disappeared. And it didn't see him for weeks. And one day this pastor was in the emergency ward of the hospital. And as he went in, he was visiting around to the different ones there, and, and one of the patients there told him, says, the man over in the far corner said he was in an automobile accident three days ago, and said he's going to die. And said he hadn't had a visitor at all since he's been here. Said, would you mind going over and trying to cheer him up just a little bit? And he said, no, I'd be glad to. And so he walked over into the corner, and sure enough, it was Jim. And as he looked at him, there was, a, there was a tranquil radiance there that made the minister feel better even. And he told him, he says, Jim, he said, I'm sorry that you're here. He said, I came over to cheer you up and says, you've made me feel better. And he said, I wanted to visit you some. He says, I understand you haven't had any visitors. And Jim says, oh, yes, but I have. He says, I have a visitor every day. He says, that's odd. He says, the patient's over there says, you haven't. He says, do you mind telling me about your visitor? And he says, no, I don't mind telling you a bit. He says, my visitor comes and stands at the foot of the bed each day. And he says, Jim, this is God. That's the simplicity of AA faith. That's the way it works. You know, down at Norfolk, Virginia, there's a huge hospital down there. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. And inscribed on the front of that hospital are these words. We heal, we, we dress the wounds. God heals them. To each and every one of us in this room right now, as I said before, our backs, our, our bodies, our souls, they have been torn and shredded and bloody from carrying an alcoholic cross. Alcoholics Anonymous dresses our wounds. And God heals them. Moving on from the plateau of achievement in which we might find material achievement. Tom put it one time, he said, we come into AA and stay for, oh, maybe six months, and we walk around, and even though we don't say it, we've got it written all over our face. I've been here for six months. He said, where's my Cadillac? <laughs> so we find some material achievement in AA even. And then, too, when we get into this plateau of achievement, we might find that we'll have troubles, too. You know, troubles are a gift to us because there's so many times that we can see much further in the dark than we can in the light. In the heat of the noonday sun, we can see only our adjacent environment around us. That's all we can see. But at nighttime, and in nighttime of life too, when everything's dark, we can get on the grass and look up and see the stars which are billions and billions of miles away. 
and so are our troubles. Every trouble that we have that God gives to us, it's a gift. It's a gift. That's the way you make good steels, heat, pressure. Nature takes the lowest, commonest element on the face of the earth, carbon. And nature takes this element and holds it on a heat and pressure for year after year after year. And the finished product is the diamond. And that's AA all over. Our trials, our troubles, our tribulations, we have the faith in God to fall back on. That will give us the strength to see it through. Step three says, we made a decision to turn our will in our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. You know, this step of giving ourselves, giving is the very essence of love. And in this third step, we can find love personified. Love, first of all, as I said of ourselves, then love of our fellow man, and then the love of God. And believe me that the transmission line of love between man and man is the transmission line to God. That's the only way we ever find it. You can bottle yourself up in a corner somewhere and live yourself the rest of your life, and you'll die without God. Someone told me a minute ago before I stood up here, they said something happens when you look into this audience, and it does. You can see that transmission line written in, on the faces of every one of you over here. Every one of you. It's in here. You know? There's a story in AA, or a story in our childhood, that, that gives us a kind of a, an explanation of, of why AA works. It's a story of the happy prince, and maybe most of you have heard it. It was a story of this prince who had a little kingdom all of his own. And his people worshipped him, they adored him, and everywhere he went, they showered him with adulation and praise. And so this one man who was in this kingdom, he looked upon it and he said to himself, he says, I want these things for myself. And so he got the bright idea of making a mask a replica of the happy prince. And so he did, and he donned this mask, and he went about the kingdom. But believe it or not, no love came to him, no adulation of the people. And so he thought to himself, there must be something else that I'm missing. And so he went back and observed the prince again. And as he did, he found one thing there. He found that the prince was always and ever willing and ready to do the kind thing, the good thing, the pure thing, the loving thing. And so he thought to himself, if, if this is what I have to do in order to gain this love of my people, he says, then this I'll do. And so he did. He went about the kingdom doing the good thing, the pure thing, the honest thing. And sure enough, the love did come to him. And he went about for, good, for a good while, and then finally his conscience smote him one day, and he said, here I am going about doing good and seeking love for myself and pretending that I'm the happy prince. And as you know, the story goes with this. He reached up to pull the mask from his face, but the mask would not come off because he was the happy prince. And to each and every one of you in AA, you are a happy prince. 
And may God always keep you so. You know, 22 years ago, divine providence reached down and touched a man, a most human man, our man, Bill. It was then and there that Alcoholics Anonymous was born. And Bill found a way. Basically, was this way a way of sobriety? No. Basically, was it a way of life? No. Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of love. Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of love. It works. It works. 